I control Wall Street. This is a corporate pra- propaganda ad run in the New York Times portraying Shaq activists as leather jacket clad hooligans. This is the text. On September 7, 2005, the New York Stock Exchange was scheduled to add Life Sciences Research Incorporated, LSRI, to the big board. 15 minutes before trading opened, NYSE officials changed their mind. LSRI is involved in vital pharmaceutical research that requires the use of animals. NYSE employees were reportedly threatened by animal rights activists whose campaign had already targeted businesses connected to LSRI. In March, six of the campaign's leaders were connected on federal terrorism charges, but the NYSE is still running scared. Direct action against those doing business with HLS, Huntington Life Sciences, has taken many forms, occasionally escalating to arson and violence. In February 2001, HLS Managing Editor, Managing Director Brian Katz was hospitalized after being attacked with axe handles at his home. That July, the Pirates for Animal Liberation sunk the yacht of a Bank, Bank of New York executive, and the bank soon severed ties with the lab. A year later, smoke bombs were set off at the offices of Marsh Corp. in Seattle, causing the evacuation of the high-rise and their disassociation from HLS. In fall of 2003, incendiary devices were left at Chiron and Shackley Corporations for their contracting with HLS. In 2005, Vancouver-based brokerage Canaccord Capital announced that it had dropped a client, Fido Farm PLC, in response to the ALF car bombing of a car belonging to a Canaccord executive. Fido Farm had been doing business with HLS. All this took place against the backdrop of constant, smaller-scale actions. In December 2006, HLS was prevented from being listed on the New York Stock Exchange, an unprecedented development that resulted in a full-page ad in the New York Times portraying a masked, apparently leather-jacketed caricature of an activist declaring, quote, I control Wall Street, unquote. In 2007, eight companies dropped HLS, including their two biggest investors, AXA and Wachovia, following home demonstrations and ALF visits to executives' houses. In 2008, incendiary devices were left under Staples trucks and Staples outlets were vandalized. About 250 companies altogether have dropped in the course of the campaign, including Citibank, the world's largest financial institution, HSBC, the world's largest bank, Marsh, the world's largest insurance broker, and Bank of America. The following is a quote from John Lewis, Deputy Assistant Director of FBI Oversight on quote-unquote eco-terrorism. Quote, Car securities began marketing the Huntington Life Sciences stock. The next day, the Manhattan by Bay Yacht Club, to which certain car executives reportedly belong, was vandalized by animal rights activists. The extremists sent a claim of responsibility to the Shack website, and three days after the incident, Carr terminated its business relationship with HLS. Unquote. Maintaining Momentum It's interesting to compare the arc of the Shack campaign to that of the so-called anti-globalization movement. Both took off in Britain before catching on in the United States. 
Shack was founded in England the same month as the historic WTO protests in Seattle. It not going to the U.S. at the tail end of an anti-globalization surge and maintained momentum after the anti-globalization movement collapsed in the wake of the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. How was the Shack campaign able to maintain momentum while practically every other direct action-based campaign founded or was co-opted by liberals? Can we derive lessons about how to weather crises from its example? Shack activists differed from participants in most other social movements in that they neither perceive themselves to need positive press coverage nor regard negative press coverage as a bad thing. Their goal was to terrify corporations out of doing business with HLS, not to win converts to the animal rights movement. The more fearsome and crazy they appeared in the media, the easier it was to intimidate potential investors and business partners. Activists in other circles feared that the terrorism scare would make it easy for the government to isolate them by portraying them as dangerous extremists. For Shaq, the most dangerous, the more dangerous and extreme they appeared, the better. All this came back to haunt them in the end, when the most influential organizers faced trial and it was easy for the prosecution to frame them as representatives of a frankly terroristic underground. In this regard, the greatest strengths of the Shaq campaign, the relationship between public and covert organizing, the fearsome reputation also proved to be its Achilles heel. The lesson seems to be that this approach can be effective on a small scale, so long as organizers do not provoke confrontation with forces much stronger than themselves. In addition to the matter of press coverage, it may be in- instructive to look at the way Shaq organizers framed the issues. Shaq spokespeople never backed down from emphasizing the necessity of direct action for animal liberation even when the rest of the nation was fixated on Al-Qaeda. The historic mobilization in Little Rock took place only a month and a half after the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Regardless of what happened in New York or Afghanistan, they emphasized that there were animals suffering at that very moment who could be scared, spared if people took a few concrete steps. Had organizers in other circles been able to maintain this kind of focus and urgency, history might have taken a different turn at the beginning of this decade. It's possible also that with other forms of organizing at the lower ebb, Shaq picked up more participants than it would have if the direct action campaigns had maintained momentum. In contrast to the massive symbolic actions of the anti-war movement, the Shaq campaign was a hotbed of experimentation in which new tactics were constantly being tested. For direct action enthusiasts concerned with masking the most of their effort, making the most of their efforts, apologize, or simply bored with being treated as a number in a crowd estimate. It must have been seductive by comparison. Whatever the cause, the Shaq campaign was able to maintain momentum until federal repression finally began to take its toll. Unlike many campaigns which have faded due to attrition or co-option, it took the full power of the state to check its advance. The following is a quote from Brian Katz, Managing Director of HLS. Quote, the number of activists isn't huge, but their impact has been incredible. There needs to be an understanding that this is a threat to all industries. The tactics could be extended to any other sectors of the economy. Unquote. Repression. All the accomplishments of the Shack campaign came at a price. The more businesses dropped relations with HLS, the more attention the campaign attracted from law enforcement agencies and right-wing think tanks. Shack organizers, in general, were not as 
easily intimidated breed were not an easily intimidated breed. It was common for participants in the campaign to joke about all the lawsuits and injunctions they had racked up, or how little it mattered if they were sued, as they had no money anyway. The U.S. and British governments ratcheted up repression steadily over the years, placing activists under surveillance, hitting them with lawsuits, blocking their fundraising efforts, intimidating, intimidating organizations like PETA out of interacting with them, passing new laws against demonstrations in residential neighborhoods, and shutting down their websites. This culminated in the U.S. with the trial of the so-called Shack 7, six organizers and the Shack USA Corporation itself. On May 26, 2004, Lauren Gazzola, Jake Conroy, Josh Harper, Kevin Gajones, Andrew Stepanian, and Darius Fulmer were indicted on various federal charges for their alleged roles in the campaign. Teams of FBI agents in riot gear invaded their homes at dawn, threatening them and their pets with guns and handcuffing their relatives. The investigation leading up to the arrest was reportedly the FBI's largest investigation of 2003. Court documents confirmed that wiretap intercepts in the investigation outnumbered the intercepted communications of that year's second largest investigation, 5 to 1. The defendants were all charged with violating the Animal Enterprise Protection Act, a controversial law intended to punish anyone who disrupts a corporation that profits from animal exploitation. Some were also charged with interstate stalking and other offenses. The defendants were never charged with engaging personally in any threatening acts. The government based its case on the notion that they should be held responsible for all illegal actions taken to further the Shack campaign, regardless of their involvement. They were found guilty on March 2, 2006, sentenced to prison terms ranging from one to six years, in order to pay tremendous quantities of money to HLS. As of this writing, the first of the defendants had been released from prison, while Andrew Stepanian has been unaccountably moved to a total isolation in a communications management unit, or CMU, and their appeal is moving forward at snail's pace. Shack 7 trial was clearly intended to set a precedent for targeting political organized, public organizers of campaigns that include covert action. Its repercussions were felt as far away as England. In 2005, the British government passed the, quote, Serious Organized Crime and Police Act, specifically to protect animal research organizations. On May 1, 2007, after a series of raids involving 700 police officers in England, Holland, and Belgium, 32 people linked to Shaq were arrested, including Heather Nicholson and Greg and Natasha Avery, among the founders of Shaq in Britain. The trial will begin September 8, 2000. In September 2008, the Averys have already pled guilty. This recording was created in early July 2009, so bear that in mind when listening to this. Despite Okay, the future of Shaq. Despite all these setbacks, the Shaq campaign continues to this day, though it faces serious challenges in the United States. Some regional organizations are still active, and autonomous actions continue to occur. There is no nationwide organizing body, no newsletter, no reliable website to publicize targets and action reports. Consequently, there is less strategic targeting, less outreach and networking, and a lack of national events. The upside is that it has been more difficult for companies to figure out who to subpoena or seek injunctions against, but that's a narrow silver lining. 
This downturn can be attributed to government repression in general and the Shack 7 trial specifically. Fear of legal repercussions has increased at the same time as key organizers have been taken out of action. With new local laws prohibiting residential picketing and the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act of 2006 making interstate territory targeting illegal, many tactics that once involved little risk are no longer feasible. Now that more public forms of organizing are being aggressively published, it seems possible that the next generation of animal liberation activists will focus more on clandestine tactics. One of the strongest features of the Shack campaign was the combination of public and clandestine approaches, so, that the, so this is not necessarily good news for the movement. It's actually, it's actually quite surprising that HLS is still in existence. Half a decade ago, Shack organizers must have been banking on already having won by that point. By this point, when Stevens and Corp divested, their loans were all kept, but all that kept HLS running. It was only the British government intervening again that enabled HLS to negotiate a refinancing and continue. Essentially, Shack did win, only to have its victory stolen away. The same situation recurred when Shack forced Marsh Inc. to break off ties and HLS was faced with the prospect of operating without the insurance mandated by law. Again, the British government intervened, and HLS was given unprecedented coverage by the Department of Trade and Industry. Without this protection from the very pinnacle of power, HLS would be long gone. That's precisely why governments exist, to protect corporations and preserve the smooth functioning of the capitalist economy. Perhaps it was naive to believe that the governments of Britain and the USA would permit even the fiercest animal liberation campaign to run an influential corporation out of business. One can't fight like there's no tomorrow indefinitely, and the repeated return of HLS from the dead must have been maddening for the long-term shack organizers who staked everything again and again on one final push. Participants disagree as to how significant a factor burnout has been, but would be foolish to rule it out. The Shack campaign has been oriented towards full-time activism from the beginning, the mindset being that, as HLS employees work full-time, their opponents must work at least that hard. Newsletter articles such as, quote, the Shacktivist workout routine, quote, unquote, indicate a high-pressure approach that probably correlates with a high rate of burnout. In, in, in any case, as difficult as it may be to explain to distinguish the effects of burnout from those of fear, many activists have indeed dropped out of Shack without moving on to other campaigns. Shack is currently quite active in mainland Europe and Latin America, and unrelenting in Britain. The British Shack campaign may offer a better model for how to handle federal repression. From this vantage point, it appears that British activists were prepared in advance for it, had people ready to take over for central organizers, and were more open to new people getting involved. But Britain is more densely populated than much of the United States. It has a richer history of animal rights organizing, so it is unfair to compare the two campaigns too closely. Will Shaq ultimately succeed in shutting down the HLS? It's still possible, though it looks less likely than it did years ago. A few years ago, even. Some still feel that the most important thing is to close HLS at all costs, to win an historic victory that will inspire activists and terrify executives for decades to come. Others think that, whether or not HLS shuts down, Shack has served its purpose, demonstrating the strengths and limitations of a new model for anti-capitalist organizing.
Following is a quote from Warren Steves on dropping a $33 million loan to Huntington Life Sciences despite having vowed never to do so, following rioting at his offices in Little Rock and vandalism of his property. Quote, We were aware of the activists, but I don't think we understood exactly to what lengths they would go. Unquote. Hallmarks of the Shack Model When people think of Shack, they picture demonstrations at the homes of employees and investors. Some anarchists mean nothing more than this when they refer to the, quote, Shack Model. But home demonstrations are merely incidental to the formula that has enabled Shack to wreak upon to wreak such havoc upon HLS. To understand what made the campaign effective, we have to look at all its essential characteristics together. Secondary and tertiary targeting. Secondary targeting means going after a person or entity who does business with the primary target of a campaign. Tertiary targeting means going after a person or entity who is connected to a secondary target. The Shack campaign set about depriving HLS of its support structure. Just as a living organism depends on an entire ecosystem for the resources and relationships it needs to survive, a corporation cannot function without investors and business partners. In this regard, more so than any standard boycott, property destruction, or publicity campaign, Shack confronted HLS on the terms most threatening to a corporation. Starbucks could easily afford a thousand times the cost of the windows smashed by the Black Bloc during the Seattle WTO protests, but if no one would replace those windows, or the windows had been broken at the houses of investors, so no one would invest in the corporation, it would be another story. Shacken and organizers made a point of learning the inner workings of the capitalist economy so they could strike most strategically. Secondary and tertiary targeting works great, because the targets do not have a vested interest in continuing their involvement with the primary target. There are other places they can take their business, and they have no reason to not do so. This is a vital aspect of the Shack model. If a business is cornered, they'll fight to the death, and nothing will matter in the conflict except the pure force each party is able to bring it to bear upon the other. This is not generally to the advantage of activists, as corporations can bring in the police and government. This is why, apart from the axe handle incident, so few efforts in the Shack campaign have been directed at HLS itself. Somewhere between the primary target and the associated corporations that provide its sports structure, there seems there appears to be a fulcrum where action is most effective. It might seem strange to go after tertiary targets that have no connection to the primary target themselves, but countless HLS customers have dropped relations after a client of theirs was embarrassed. Symbiotic, public, and underground organizing. More than any other direct action campaign in recent history, the Shack campaign achieved a perfect symbiosis of public organizing and underground action. To this end, the campaign was characterized by an extremely savvy use of technology and modern networking. The Shack websites disseminated information about targets and provided a forum for action reports to raise morale and expectations enabling anyone sympathetic to the goals of the campaign to play a part without drawing attention to themselves. Diversity of Tactics Rather than pitting exponents of different tactics against each other, Shaq integrated all possible tactics into one campaign, in which each approach complemented the others. This meant that participants could choose from a practically limitless array of options, 
which opened the campaign to a wide range of people and averted needless conflicts. Concrete targets, concrete motivations. The fact that there were specific animals suffering, whose lives could be saved by specific direct action, made the issues concrete and lent the campaign a sense of urgency that translated into a willingness on the part of participants to push themselves out of their comfort zones. Likewise, at every juncture in the Shack campaign, there were intermediate goals that could easily be accomplished, so the monumental task of undermining an entire corporation never felt overwhelming. This contrasts sharply with the way momentum in certain green anarchist circles died off after the turn of the century. When the goals and targets became too expansive and abstract, it had been easy for individuals to motivate themselves to defend specific trees and natural areas. But once the point from some participants but once the point for some participants was to quote destroy civilization and everything less was mere reformism, it was impossible to work out what constituted meaningful action. Reflections on the Shack model. Advantages. When the model pioneered by Shack is applied correctly, its advantages are obvious. It hits corporations where they are most vulnerable. Corporations do not do what they do because of ethical commitments or in order to obtain a certain public image, but in single-minded pursuit of profit. And the Shack model focuses closely, exclusively on making corporate wrongdoings unprofitable. In terms of building and maintaining a long-running direct action campaign, the Shack model offers direction and motivation for participants, providing a framework for concrete rather than symbolic actions. The Shack model sidesteps conflicts over tactics, offering the opportunity for activists of a range of abilities and comfort levels to work together. In establishing a wide array of targets, it gives activists the opportunity to pick the time, place, and character of their actions rather than constantly reacting to their opponents. Above all, the Shack model is efficient. Shack USA has never had more than a few hundred active participants at any given time. In contrast to most current organizing strategies, the Shack model is an offensive approach. It offers a means of attacking and defeating established capitalist projects, of taking the initiative rather than simply responding to the advance of corporate power. Shaq did not set out to block the construction of a new animal testing facility or the passage of new legislation, but to defeat and destroy an animal testing corporation that existed for decades. The Shaq model demands and fosters a culture that not only celebrates direct action, but constantly engages in it, encouraging participants to push their own limits. This contrasts sharply with certain so-called insurrectionist circles in which anarchists talk a lot about rioting and resistance without engaging in any day-to-day confrontations with the powers that be. Anti-globalization activists in Chicago sometimes asked Shaq organizers to lead chants at the protests, as the latter had a reputation for being boisterous and energetic. Those who cut their teeth in the Shaq campaign, if they had not dropped out of direct action organizing entirely, are equipped to be effective in a wide wide range of contexts. A subtler strength of the Shack approach is that it draws on class tensions that are usually submerged in the United States. Activists from lower middle class and working class backgrounds can find it gratifying to confront wealthy executives on their own turf. This also exposes single-issue activists to the interconnections of the ruling class. In visiting the houses of executives, 
one discovers that all the pharmaceutical and investment corporations are intertwined. They all own shares of each other's companies, sit on each other's boards, and live in identical suburban mansions and sprawling, gated communities. Finally, the Shack model took advantage of opportunities offered by larger events and communities. Home demonstrations were often organized to take place after a con- conference or show. Ubiquity of potential targets meant there was always one close at hand. For several years running, Shack demonstrations took place during the National Conference on Organized Resistance in Washington, D.C., and also they also occurred following each anti-biotech pro- protests in Philadelphia and Chicago. Though some, these sometimes provoked conflicts with other organizers, it only takes a couple dozen people to make an effective home demonstration, so it was always easy to pull one together. Shack itself tended to create and propagate a subculture of its own, complete with internal reference points and rituals. At conferences and major mobilizations, activists compared notes about investors, local campaigns, and legal troubles. The sympathetic music scenes helped fund organizing and introduced new blood to the campaign. It would be difficult to imagine the Shack campaign in the USA without the hardcore scene of the past two decades, which has consistently served as a social base for the militant animal rights movement. There are certainly drawbacks to identifying a campaign too closely with a specific youth-oriented subculture, but it is better to draw participants and momentum from at least one community than from none at all. Spurious Charges Some anarchists have thoughtlessly charged Shaq with reformism. This is absurd. Shaq's goal is not to change the way HLS conducts itself, but to shut it down. It is more precise to describe Shaq as an abolitionist campaign. Not being able to bring about the end of animal exploitation in one fell blow, it seeks to accomplish the most ambitious but feasible step toward that end. Similarly, certain idol critics deride animal liberation efforts on the grounds that they are, quote, activism, unquote, with the implication that this is a bad thing in and of itself. Those who adopt this position should go ahead and acknowledge that they are unmoved by the oppression of their fellow living creatures and see no value in attempting to put an end to it. That is to say, they are hardly anarchists. Drawbacks and Limitations Serious critiques aside, the Shack model has some real limitations which deserve examination. First, there are certain prerequisites without which it will fail. For example, the Shack model cannot succeed outside a setting in which direct action is regularly applied. All the strategic thinking in the world is worthless if no one is actually willing to act. In the militant animal rights milieu, the issues at stake are felt to be concrete and poignant enough that participants are motivated to take risks on a regular basis. Without this motivation, the Shack campaign would not have gotten off the ground. Likewise, the Shack model is powerless against a target that does not depend on secondary and tertiary targets, or has an endless supply of them to choose from. Above all, the secondary and tertiary targets must have somewhere else to take their business. The Shack model relies on the rest of the capitalist market to offer better options. In this regard, while it is not reformist, neither does it provide strategy for taking on capitalism itself. Secondary, as effective as they might be in purely economic terms, secondary and tertiary targeting locate the site of confrontation far away from the cause for which participants are fighting. 
Generally speaking, the more abstract the project of a campaign feels, the worse for morale. Much of the vitality for eco-defense struggles in the 1980s and 90s came from the immediate, visceral connection forest defenders experienced with the land they were occupying. When environmental activism began shifting to more urban terrain a decade ago, it lost some of its impetus. It is perhaps specific to the Shaft campaign that participants have been able to maintain their outrage and audacity so far from the object of their concern. It is risky to assume this will always occur in other contexts. Apart from these challenges, the Shack model may be ineffective precisely because of its effectiveness. Is it realistic to set out to shut down powerful corporations, or will the government always intercede? It may be that imposing a threat to corporations in the economic terms they take most seriously, the Shack model picks a fight it cannot win. Once the government is involved in a conflict, it takes more than a tight network of militants to win. It takes an entire large-scale social movement and the Shack model is not equipped to give rise to such a thing. In this regard, the Shack model's greatest strength is also its fatal flaw. Time will tell if HLS was too ambitious to target. The corporation might still collapse. Even so, it would probably be wise for the next ones who experiment with the model to set smaller goals rather than even more ambitious ones, since the Shack campaign itself has yet to succeed. Perhaps some unexplored middle ground awaits between shutting down individuals fur stores and attempting to close Europe's largest animal testing corporation. This is not to say that the Shack model is useless if it does not result in the closure of the target. Sometimes it is worth fight, fighting a losing battle so as to discourage an opponent from starting another battle. Other times, even losing one can gain valuable experiences and allies. Ironically, the Shack model may be more effective for recruiting people to anarchism and direct action organizing than for its professed goal, precisely because in bypassing recruitment to focus on other goals, it attracts participants who are serious and committed. But if the point is to bring more people into direct action, organizing, then simply to shut down a single corporation, there are significant drawbacks to the Shack model too. For example, the high stress levels and likelihood of burnout. In this regard, it is not necessarily an advantage that the Shack model teaches activists to think in the same terms as capitalist economists, efficiency, finances, chain of command, rather than prioritizing the social skills necessary to build long-term communities of resistance. Likewise, in focusing on secondary and tertiary targeting, the Shack model emphasizes and rewards an aggressive attitude that is less ambitious, advantageous in other situations. What are the long-term psychological effects on organizers who spend half a decade or more screaming over a bullhorn at employees in their homes? What kind of people are drawn to a campaign that consists primarily of making other people miserable? It cannot go unsaid that some anarchists have reported frustrating interactions with Shack organizers. Considering the model from an anarchist perspective, to what extent does a Shack approach tend to consolidate or undermine hierarchies? The secure organizing necessary for clandestine direct action can promote a cliquishness then that intensifies as repression increases, thus preventing a campaign from drawing a new participation when it needs it most. Informal hierarchies plague organizing of all kinds. In the case of the Shack campaign, those who do the research often have disproportionate influence over the direction of a campaign and end up making judgment calls with far-reaching effects. This is not necessarily a problem, but it is something to watch out for. 
It could be argued that the single-issue focus and goal-oriented nature of the Shack campaign deprioritizes addressing forms of hierarchy other than the oppression of animals. It is no secret that some Shack organizing groups have been racked by conflicts over gender dynamics. If there have been not been corresponding conflicts regarding race and class, this may simply indicate that Shack organizing has been predominantly white and middle class. Some have charged that the animal rights movement in the U.S. attracts many from this demographic who are more comfortable protesting the oppression and exploitation of animals than addressing the power imbalances and their relationships with other human beings. It is no secret that some shack organizing groups have been racked by conflicts over gender dynamics and some participants have not always been held accountable for their behavior. In a campaign that emphasizes victory above all else, this should not be surprising. If, you only, if the most important thing is to win, it's easy to put off addressing internal conflicts, especially within the added stress of federal repression. Inevitably, the people who have had bad experiences drop out of the campaign, taking with them the criticism others need to hear. These questionable priorities have also manifested themselves in certain tasteless tactics, in one instance, a target who was struggling to escape alcoholism received a can of beer with a nasty note. In another, a woman's underwear was stolen and reportedly put up for sale. Utilizing the power imbalances of patriarchal society, the target accomplices and the oppression of animals hardly sets an example of struggle against all forms of domination. There are other ethical questions about secondary and tertiary targeting. Is it acceptable to risk frightening or injuring secretaries, children, and other uninvolved parties? What distinguishes anarchists from governments and other terrorists, if not the refusal to countenance collateral get damage? In essence, the Shack model is a blueprint for a campaign of coercion to be used in situations in which there is no other possible accountability pro- process. This does not conflict with anarchist values. When an oppressor refuses to be accountable for his actions, it is necessary to compel him to stop, and this extends to those who aid and abet him as well. But targeting people who are not themselves involved in oppression muddies the waters. When an organizer publicizes the target, there is no telling what actions will carry out. Perhaps the value of ending animal exploitation outweighs these wet risks and costs, but anarchists should not get too comfortable making such rationalizations. Other Applications of the Shack Model There has been much talk of applying the Shack Model in other contexts but few such efforts have produced anything comparable to the Shack campaign. This bears some reflection. It's worth pointing out that some of the hype about the far-reaching applicability of the Shack model has come from HLS itself, and so should be taken with a grain of salt. HLS is not interested in promoting effective new direct action methods, but rather in creating enough of a scare that other members of the ruling class will come to their assistance. It follows that even if they claim that that shack tactics can be used effectively against any target. This is not necessarily the case. It may be that, because the shack campaign maintained momentum while other forms of organizing dropped off, it has exerted a disproportionate influence upon the imaginations of current anarchists to such an extent that many now tend to imitate the shack model in their organizing, even when it is not strategically effective. Failures can be more instructive than successes, Unfortunately, as they are more readily forgotten, they are often repeated over and over. For this reason, any consideration of the Shack model should begin with the example of root force. 
Root force arose out of Earth First circles a couple of years ago with the intention of promoting a shack-style campaign targeting the infrastructure of global capitalism, an exponentially more ambitious goal than shutting down HLS. The organizers researched the corporations involved in pivotal infrastructural projects such as transcontinental highways and power plants. A website was set up to publicize this information and any ac- actions that occurred. It seemed that all the pieces were in place, and yet nothing happened. Early in 2008, Root Force released a statement entitled, A Revised Strategy, in which they acknowledged that their efforts had failed to produce an effective direct action campaign, and described the difficulties of attempting to inspire action against infrastructural projects located so far away as to seem entirely abstract. Root Force misunderstood how direct action campaigns take off, Action and inaction are both contagious, and some people, if some people are invested enough in a cause to risk their freedom for it, others may do the same. But as no one wishes to go out on a limb in isolation, a sound strategy alone is not sufficient to inspire actions. Compare this to the critique of calls for, quote, autonomous actions at mass mobilizations that appeared in Demonstrating Resistance in the first issue of Rolling Thunder. Properly publicized, one serious direct action in the Root Force campaign would have been worth a hundred road shows. The Root Force campaign had other flaws as well. If the goal was simply to give demonstrators something to do, the strategy was as good as any other. But if they hoped to block the construction of the highways and power plants, most essential to the expansion of the capitalist market, they would have had to mobilize a lot more force than the Shack campaign. If the targets were picked that they picked were of critical importance to the powers that be, it follows that the government would have mobilized every resource to defend them. Overextension is the number one error of small-scale resistance movements. Rather than setting attainable goals and building slowly on modest successes, organizers set themselves up for defeat by attempting to skip directly to the final showdown with global capitalism. We can fight and win ambitious battles, but to do so, we have to assess our capabilities realistically. Other shack-influenced approaches have been characterized, characterized by an emphasis on home demonstrations. For example, over the past few years, protesters against the IMF and World Bank have experimented with targeting executives and corporate sponsors. In 2006, while Paul Wolfowitz was president of the World Bank, there was a series of demonstrations at his girlfriend's home. Eventually, she moved. This does not seem to have impacted the IMF to the extent as the worldwide social movements described in David Graeber's article, quote, The Shock of Victory, in a previous issue of Rolling Thunder. Sarcasm aside, there's little to be gained from harassing people like Wolfowitz, unlike the tertiary parties Shaq targeted. They are not simply going to take the business elsewhere. Similarly, Similarly, at the 2004 Republican National Convention, some organizers called for demonstrators to focus on harassing the delegates. The risk of this approach is that it can frame the conflict as a private grudge match between activists and authorities, rather than a political movement that is able to attract mass participation. Like Like Wolfowitz, Republican delegates are hardly going to retire because a few protesters shout at them, and even if some did, they would instantly be replaced. One proposal for the 2008 RNC protest involved our activists targeting corporations that would be providing services to the convention. Targeting corporations providing services might have helped build momentum in the lead-up to the RNC, 
but it's unlikely that it could have succeeded in depriving an organization as powerful as the Republican Party of necessary resources. The same probably goes for proposals to target weapon, weapons contractors serving the U.S. government. It might give demonstrators something exciting to do, but no one should underestimate what it would take to make a corporation like Boeing break off relations with the U.S. military. Some see the current rising tide in reinforced action network campaigns against Make of America as relatives of the Shack campaign, all these are, although these are directly descended from environmental campaigns that preceded it. They are using secondary ter- targeting to stop coal re- corporations from engaging in mountaintop removal. It's too early to tell how this will play out. Another such campaign is taking place in Indiana, where people are endeavoring to stop the construction of Highway I-69 via a combination of home and office demonstrations and forest occupation tactics. In, quote, a revised strategy, Root Force cited I-69 as a pivotal infrastructural project, and it will be interesting to see how the state responds should the struggle against I-69 become formidable. All this is not to say that the Shack model cannot be applied effectively, but simply to emphasize that activists must be intentional and strategic about where and how they attempt to do so. There are probably some situations in which the model would, could accomplish even more than it has for Shack. Without a doubt, there are other contexts in which it can actually be counterproductive. To repeat, the Shack campaign in the U.S. has only involved a few hundred participants at any given time. A few thousand could possibly take on a bigger target. Even forcing the government to bail out a corporation, whether or not the target was successfully bankrupted, could still constitute an important victory. As of today, it remains to be seen where effective applications of the Shack model will be found beyond the campaign that spawned it. It's a quote from the ALF press office. Where all animal welfare and most animal rights groups insist on working within the legal boundaries of society, Animal liberationists argue that the state is irrevocably, irrevocably corrupt and that legal approaches alone will never win justice for the animals.